It's Wednesday, April the 13th, 2022. I'm James Brierton in Charlotte. An all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group coming your way in just moments. Our guest is Adam Warwick. He is the Fire Project Manager at the Nature Conservancy of North Carolina. And we're going to be talking about the spring fire danger. You don't want to miss it. This was an episode that was available early to all of you who support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Carolina Weather Group for $3.99 a month. Not only do you help keep this show on the air, but you unlock early access to interviews just like the one you're about to see with Adam. And we have three or four others right now up at patreon.com slash Carolina Weather Group. If you want to jumpstart your Carolina Weather Group binging, you can do that while also supporting our show. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. Uh, we have our guest with us tonight, Mr. Adam Warwick. He is from Hendersonville, North Carolina, and he is with Southern Blue Ridge Conservatory with the state of North Carolina and the stewardship manager in the uh, Southern Blue Ridge area. And tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about the Appalachian Mountains and just the overall fire season and fire danger that we deal with here in the Appalachians, not only in Western North Carolina, but even the Northern parts of South Carolina with the, the Appalachian Mountains uh, being in that area and kind of what makes Western North Carolina, upstate South Carolina, really a, a um, an area that we could see a lot of wildfire grow or wildfires uh, develop, uh, especially in our dry seasons that uh, that we've been dealing with here over the last year or so in the Carolinas. Thankfully, uh, we're starting to get the rain to return, but there over the uh, last winter, uh, we definitely saw some wildfires breaking out even outside of the mountains, even in the Pilot Mountain area and places like that. So we're going to talk about uh, Appalachian fire weather tonight, and uh, we encourage you to follow along with the conversation, and uh, you can tweet us or Facebook us some questions, and we'll be monitoring those throughout the show. So, Adam, uh, welcome to the show. I know uh, not necessarily in the meteorology world, but uh, I'm going to give you our, our first question we give all of our guests and kind of tell us about your uh, your story. How did you get involved in, in really uh, focusing on wildfires in the Appalachian Mountains and, and especially here in the Carolinas? I'll say that... Um... I, you know, I grew up in Knoxville, and I was always just fond of animals. Um, my whole family is that way. We're just kind of animal people. And, and uh, you know, I grew up doing things like um, hunting and fishing. And, you know, but one of the fondest memories I, is just sitting on the back porch and, and birding with my grandmother. Um, so grew up in Knoxville, went over to UT and studied zoology. And then, uh, you know, got a job, a little job in New England for a little bit. And then I... I went to graduate school out at the University of Missouri and studied fisheries and wildlife. And, and when I got done with that, you know, um, I think your all's field might be the same way, but you kind of go where the jobs are um, versus like maybe in the medical field where you can pretty much maybe get a job in any town. Um, and that took me to North Florida. So um, Florida is, of course, you know, lightning capital of the of the United States. And so it's a lot of a, a lightning driven fire regime. It's a very fiery place. So, you know, as much as California is prone to burn, Florida is just as, just as prone to, to, um, to burn. It just, it, it's been that way for thousands of years. And, um, <clears throat> and so I didn't have a choice, but, you know, going into the wildlife field, um, fire is an important management tool. It's the most economical, uh, tool you can use to 
restore and manipulate um, animal animal habitat. And in fact, um, a lot of the species, grassland birds especially, reptile species and, and pollinators are um, declining as a result in part of fire exclusion because of, of the way that um, in the absence of fire, um, you know, uh, the, the, the flowers and the, the, the plants, the grasses that you have in your, in your garden, the pollinator type plants, herbaceous plants, get outcompeted by shrubs and trees, which is the case in most areas. And that leads to uh, um, absence of habitat for grassland birds and so among other species. So, um, so among, among uh, so, so in Florida, it's necessary to manage for wildlife habitat and also it reduces hazardous fuels. So all that's just to say, if you work in Florida doing wildlife, you gotta know how to burn. Um, so I was there for nine years and then I saw this job with the Nature Conservancy come up and, um, in, in, in Asheville, North Carolina, I was like, how good, you know, how much better can it get than that? So, um, so I jumped on it and, uh, been here just yesterday was n uh, nine years and, um, I've been building the Southern Blue Ridge fire program for the, for the Nature Conservancy and, um, working in an entity called the Southern Blue Ridge Fire Learning Network, which I can tell you more about but that's that's it and so when you ask me how long have I been working in wildfire I'd ha I deal more much more in prescribed fire um, it, collectively I think you you know we tend to use the term nowadays as wildland fire which kind of captures both because fi ultimately fire is fire so um, so that's kind of how I got into it I came into it from the ecology side of things the common folk who, who may not know a lot about fire weather or maybe a weather enthusiast, but doesn't really understand the, the wildfire element. Talk to us about what, what those conditions are like, like what is, what is something as you see um, that really concerns you about wildfires? Like um, I know obviously drought conditions, but what are those, what are those factors that we need to watch for to kind of see this fire development growth uh, on those I guess, Jared, we, we have those uh, fire danger days that we see, red flag warning days, but what, what elements kind of lead up to that to really say, all right, we need to watch this day for the potential of, of, wild, of wildfires or, or, or fast spreading fires? Yeah, so, you know, you're, you, you know, you're kind of sitting there um, looking at your, your front, you know, your front's coming through from the west and, it, and it's bringing rain or, or cooler weather, and then you got that dry high pressure behind it. And so generally when you know you got that rain front and if overall you're in a dry pattern and um and then you get that front come through and maybe the rain doesn't quite pan out it really doesn't dampen the fuels for very long because you're kind of in this little short-term drought so then behind that front as you know we get those dry northerly winds and the up unstable atmosphere and the really um, when the atmosphere is unstable, it can um, cause a dramatic uh, fire behavior, really erratic fire behavior, because you've got that vertical, that vertical lift. Um, when we're doing a prescribed fire, we look for those days because our most, our biggest challenge to prescribe fire is the smoke management. So we need a high, um, higher transport winds and higher mixing height. Um, if you go over to the wildfire side, then you know going in in the briefing that morning that hey you know that front came through and it didn't give us any rain last night so um 
so be on your toes. And what that means then is, um, so uh, Mr. Johnson, you know, it was um, Sunday and he burned, he was burning leaves in his backyard. And, you know, it was kind of damp out, so it's no big deal. And then that front comes through Sunday night. He goes to work the next morning and thinks his fire's out. But then those winds, those winds kick up 15, 20 miles an hour and your, um, you know, your humidity might get down into 25, 20% is really low for us. So, you know, but when it gets down there, that's when... Uh, overall, your dry pattern has those leaves, uh, which is our main fuel. It dries those out really quick. Um, the more open the woods are, the more the faster it dries. The more closed and dense and shaded, the longer it takes for those fuels to dry out. But it's a mixture. It's that combination of high pressure, vertical lift, low humidity, and winds. 10, 10 to 15 miles an hour with you know, if you mix in like these 25, 30 mile an hour gusts, that's enough to get, to stoke a fire and um, and get it going. And so then, you know, we roll out, we try to suppress a fire, the fire department's first on the scene and in the, and in the mountains, the challenge we have is that fire burns really fast uphill, faster than you can catch it almost by running, if you were able to run up the hill. And so we arrive and that fire is generally running uphill and as flames, go uphill they're bent over as you know and so that preheats the vegetation and the fuels above it such that it escalates in intensity until it reaches the ridge top and when it reaches the ridge top it can be in the treetops um you know the southern appalachians have this really unique phenomenon which is to hold on to those desiccated leaves in the oak trees and things later into the fall and um that's right right in, the, in our dry season right so that's the combination that we had in that 2016 right we had leaves continually falling so places would burn and then they would burn back again and we would put fire lines in and the leaves would cover up the fire line so that was that's a real unique challenge for the southern appalachians and uh dealing with wildfire um but uh, but it's endless endlessly fascinating but the the wildfire um those days where we have those winds and low humidity that's those are the those are the challenges and then of course the drought index the kbdi we watch that and um and our uh days since rain day since rain once we get to about seven or eight days nine days since rain that's when you'll start seeing fires popping up why do you do the prescribed burns in the first place you know, when we set out and we set up a burn plan for a particular place, we, we, we design, we develop our objectives, like what do we want to accomplish. In the Southern Appalachians and in most places, um, it kind of goes back to habitat for specific, specific species or groups of species. Um, someone that owns a 4,000 acre plantation and he or she has guests that come and hurt, hunt bobwhite quail. Um, their burning would be to keep the vegetation in a shrub grass stage. So you would burn it about every year or every other year at the latest. Um, other places like, you know, California or even Southern Appalachians, um, an agency like a CAL FIRE or a U.S. Forest Service might have a burn next to houses. And so their objective is reduce the hazardous fuels, you know, in our, near, in our area. Mountain laurel is a shrub that burns really, really hot. And a lot of people 
have it around their homes. And so, um, so sometimes we burn for, to reduce hazardous fuels. Um, other times there's plant species that are declining because they're light loving species, they're native plants and they're light loving species, sunlight loving. So crowded forests, like is what we, which we, what we have 95% of today, uh, these, these species just blink out, you know, and, um, and so, uh, our bigger concern now is the decline of oak species, you know, um, you know, we had American chestnut up until the early 1900s and, you know, it got the, um, the, uh, the fungus drawn a blank chestnut blight. And then when they disappeared from the landscape, the oak trees sort of came in to take their space collectively. So now those trees are getting up to 125 years old, 150 years old, and they're starting to die. But uh, an oak, a small oak tree, a seedling, after the acorn sprouts, it needs at least 30% full sunlight in order to have enough, uh, to meet the photosynthetic demands it needs to grow. So uh, oaks are disappearing and they're not coming back because there's, not enough fire in the woods and not enough light getting to the forest floor. So we have that challenge with Southern yellow pines too, like shortleaf pine and, um, and down in other part, down towards Charleston, the issue is, um, is with longleaf pine, which is even more fire adapted. So there's a whole host of reasons and um, we're learning more and more about it. Interestingly, um, and I don't know how much you know, guys know about, you know, different tree species, but if you don't burn a, a, a poplar is a, is a real fire sensitive species. It's easily killed. It's got real thin bark in the absence of fire. Um, it can outcompete an oak or a pine tree for, and it can grow up into the space before the oak gets a chance. It's like a tortoise and a hare, right? The, the oak, the acorn sprouts and then it, it gets it puts a lot of its energy into growing a deep taproot because they tend to grow in um, areas that are kind of dry and a little more harsh um, harsh and growing environment so it's it's it when it does that when it puts all those resources into the roots and then it gets burned it's able to sprout back stronger and stronger every time so um, Eventually, with fire as a part of the landscape, the oak can outcompete the poplar because the poplar gets killed back each time you, each time you burn it. And so, I draw that comparison just because there's new research that shows that how much more water uh, uh, a poplar uses evapotranspiration-wise than an oak. Um, an oak is a much more conservative water user. Well, how does that? Uh, how does that reconcile with how, how fast our region is growing and the water quantity demand? Um, can we burn to provide more water is the, is the take home. What we're, that's kind of what we're, some of our research is, is going into now. So uh, a lot of different reasons to burn. What weather conditions and, and other conditions too, not, not just weather conditions, but uh, you know, the time of year, uh, maybe particular mating season you're trying to avoid what what are you looking for for when conditions are you looking for to do a prescribed burn well our best months of the year are february march and april um i think april's the best um and most favorable um 
we get these days where it's humidity's in the 20s and we've got a little bit of breeze to help us out but a lot of times it's not too not too crazy of a breeze um and then in the fall in the dry period when the leaves are coming off our the thing that carries our fire in the understory is hardwood leaf litter and so when it's fresh before it's been compacted by the snow over the winter fall burning is is really great in fact and, that, and these were the traditional chums that the Cherokee would burn. Um, in the fall, they would burn to expose chestnuts for them to harvest. It was it was integral to their to, to their food uh, food supply. As our as were acorns um, from oak from oaks, and so they would burn in the fall to skim off the leaf litter and expose the chestnuts, and then um, harvest those. And then in the spring, um, they would burn to basically. It's kind of like fertilizing your garden, you know, in the spring, because you 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 release all those nutrients in the above ground biomass, and it and it burns to ash and gets back goes back into the soil, and it's kind of it's kind of basic um, rather than acidic, and so it's really good for plants. And they would, you know, and they would have you know later farms and things, and so blueberries, for example, love to be burned. You know, the highest production they have is two years after a, the second year after a burn um, in terms of berry production. Um, so, uh, you know, so spring and fall, and um, we're right in the heart of burn season right now. So it's the Appalachian. So it all depends on the, how these rain, um, how, the, how these rain events come across. And then how hard does the wind blow behind that front and how low does the humidity get and how many dry days can we get out of that? Because, the first two days of, of rain after a rain are usually a no-go. Um, the third day is iffy. But see, then a lot of times we get hosed because then the next front's coming through. And so that cloud cover, that initial cloud cover is building in and that traps our smoke um, down. And, and um, with inversions in the mountains and trapping that smoke, that's our, one of our, that's our, that's like our first screening tool. You go on the, North Carolina Forest Service website in the morning and you, you know, you want to burn and you look and they're like, oh, it's a category two day, which, um, which is basically based on the ventilation rate range. Uh, that's, you know, the, um, the transport winds times the mixing height to get your vent rate. And, and, and when you, when you have those initial, those initial clouds come in ahead of that front, it will, um, it will keep trapped that smoke and it'll make it a, a burning category where we can't, where we're not allowed to burn legally. Um, it can go on to interstates and, you know, Florida uh, during those years had those bad events where they put smoke on the interstate and um, you'd have a 50, 60 car pile up and, um, you know, and you, you don't want to send it to a hospital. You don't want to send it smoke to a nursing home, but when we burn, you know, in the mountains, you got to get that smoke up and out because once that inversion sets in, it's going to push that smoke down valley. It's going to settle in whatever town is sitting down there and you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get calls um, when, when, they, when they trace it back to, to who was burning. So we really, you know, um, it's all about those little weather patterns. Overall, we're in a dry spell kind of which is good for us i think uh as far as burning conditions and so now it's just a matter of timing but 
I feel good about it. Suppose someone wants to know if there's prescribed burns coming up in their area. What are ways they can uh, look to find out in advance when there's going to be a prescribed burn nearby? You can get on the email list of the U.S. Forest Service. With prescribed burning on the state level, I think the Wildlife Commission and the Forest Service do similar outreach um, through radio and, and newspaper announcements, and um, we'll call the neighbors and things like that. But I guess there is no real one-stop shop for going on and looking. You know what you could do, actually? Um, before, we do, um, before we do a burn, the day before, we log on to the... Um, the National Weather Service uh, and get a spot weather forecast. And and then the morning of, we get another one about 6 a.m. So if you, and there's a page that you can, there's a button you can click on that says monitor. And it's real simple. It's a map you can scroll around and you can zoom into your area and then you could see everybody that requested a spot forecast for a prescribed burn that day. What are you all using? Um, what kind of tooling are you guys using to, you know, keep an eye on things and, and kind of find those hotspots? Drones, a lot, a lot uh, drones are, are becoming super popular and super valuable. The, the, um, the way that they can sense, uh, they can, you know, we can be, get done with a burn or a wildfire, you know, especially out West. It's like, um, the West is crazy. I was in Northeast Oregon this summer and it's like, it's like the dirt burns out there. It's, it's like, you know, it's so dry that there's little fragments of roots in amongst the mineral soil, which, you know, mineral soil can't, can't burn, but it's, it, it almost does out there. And, uh, it's burning the organic matter that's in there. And, and it's like, it's just, it's so dry. It's real. It's hard to put out a fire out there. You got to put so much water on it. Um, uh, uh, and so we historically just do, do that by hand. You know, we go around and we, we, we sit on a spot and we look for smoke, the slightest smoke. Then we go over there and we dig and we stick our hand down there and feel around to where the heat's coming from. Now with a drone, you can do that remotely. Um, and so we're finding a lot more hot spots, you know, around the perimeter. And then we also can uh, use those drones to survey dead trees next to our, the perimeter of our burn unit are the, are a real challenge. Snags is what we, how we refer to them. But basically they're, they'll catch on fire much easier uh, when we're doing a burn or a wildfire. And then you'll go home and it'll start spewing embers um, out of your burn, out of the area past your fire line. And then you've got, so we go in before we do a burn or on wildfires and we really have to take down those trees or at least rake around them where they, where they won't catch fire, but it's so hard. They're just so duffy and, and dry and receptive to, to fire that, uh, especially out West. So, um, you know, long before that, we are using remote sensing to um, look at the, the tree canopy to uh, to monitor as time goes on. Are we having our intended effect, which is to thin the overstory, create better understory light conditions. And with LIDAR, we can also tell um, if we're having an impact on the shrub layer as well, which we're which we're trying to do. We're trying to 
knock back some of the hardwoods and open the space up for better pollinator and ground nesting bird habitat and um, and, and habitat for reptiles and, and small mammals as well. Adam, I have one more question for you. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier um, and, and people see these prescribed burns and they see fires in general. Uh, and obviously they, they can, at least the wildfires can create a lot of devastation like we've seen out in California and Colorado and, and back here in 2016 uh, over in Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area. But by, fire also helps the mountains and the forest and stuff recover. So uh, before we close up, can you tell us a little bit about why fire is good in, in some of these locations and really what, what it help, helps promote? Native American people have been burning um, areas all over the United States, but in the Southern Appalachians for about the past 4,000 years, from what we can tell from tree rings and soil, soil charcoal studies. Um, and, you know, and then right at 100 years ago with um, the big fire of 1910 is when the, the for U.S. Forest Service was created. And it was created in large part to stop all forest fires from destroying the timber that our country needed to build our infrastructure, right? And so ever since then, we've just gotten better and better and better at suppressing fire. Well, now we're to a point, and, and along the way, scientists would say, hey, this might not be the best idea. Um, it always got pushed aside in, in favor of um, the timber industry, but now, that timber has it, there's not the demand for that anymore as much um, it's more about people living in next to the national forest north carolina has more of that than any other state in the country so um so it's a tradition and and species wildlife and plant species have evolved co-evolved with native people indigenous people and fire and then we've we've pulled that out of this ecosystem for a hundred years and we're starting to see the ramifications of that. Um, I talked about grassland bird decline. Um, it makes better burning makes better bat habitat, believe it or not. It, um, it's better for pollinators, um, turkeys, a, a turkey hen, you know, that the grass, it, it needs to be about three feet high, you know, mix of grass and shrubs because she wants to sit on that nest. And she wants to be able to stand up and see a fox or a coyote or something coming and then sit back down. Um, tell me, you know, tell me how much of that you see walking out around in the woods here. Not a lot. Um, deer, um, the, the deer are called a concentrate selector. So they don't just browse every kind of plant there is. They go for the most nutritious parts of every plant. They take a little bit of every plant. And so the most nutrition is in the freshest growth, which typically comes after a fire, right? The plants re-sprout and it's that soft, lush stuff. That's what they want. When it turns rank and leathery, it loses the digestibility and the, and the nu nutrition. Um, and so they leave it alone. So whether you're managing for deer, songbirds, bats, whatever, um, this is a proven tool that everyone can use to promote species that that are that we want that we want that are desirable native people used it for food and medicine to promote food and medicine plants um and and, uh, and so um 
I want to carry, I want to bring back that fire culture of the Southern Appalachians that's been missing and, um, and we're doing it. And, um, it is really, it, it's really awesome to, uh, it's really awesome to see. And it's neat to see the, your work improve the habitat. The most gratifying thing, of course, is when species, you see these pine warblers or prairie warblers or things move back in. Um, that's really gratifying as well. So it's, you know, in, on a, you know, on a personal level, I think, um, I say this and it sounds funny, but I think everybody would get along better if they, if they burn together. Um, I think getting out in the woods and lighting the woods on fire and using this stewardship tool to care for the land and doing it with a group of friends and having fun and strategizing about the best way to do it, where it's like a, it's an art form. Um, I think it's a cultural, I think it has a lot of cultural and sociological value to, to get out. You know, we're so disconnected from each other. We're more connected, but at the same time, not, it's not the same as people were connected 200 years ago when they didn't have all of these other things. So I think that, you know, and it's easy for people to be ugly to each other on Facebook or online, you know, and, and argue, but you know, the studies have shown that when you sit down with people, people aren't as able to, aren't as ugly to each other when they have to do it face to face. Right. And so I think it's about community and camaraderie. And that's, that's kind of what uh, my fire crew is about. And it's about um, community taking back ownership of the fire for too long. It's been as if the federal uh, and state government own fire but nobody owns it fires its own entity and it's a tool we can harness for for good reasons and, and we know that because native people did it for, for thousands of years so in our own way with all the challenges with smoke management that we have we want to bring that culture back and and uh and maybe in doing so we um we improve friendships and relationships and um that's my vision anyway adam thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight and, and really going in depth about this um as we enter uh that that uh, prescribed burning season here um as we get into springtime um these will, will be great assets to look back on so uh if, if you have a social media or a website or anything like that that you'd like to prom promote we'd love to give you the opportunity to do that it's easy website. It's sbrfln.com, as in Southern Blue Ridge Fire Learning Network.com. And um, on there, you'll find uh, several tabs, but under the resources tabs, you'll find a couple of books that I that I recently wrote, um, The Fire Manager's Guide and another another little book about wildlife. And I, and I wrote those to for people to understand. Like we have this, like you guys have probably seen the need for this in your field but basically you have you know we can read the science and we can geek out on journal articles but you have to translate that for people that don't speak that science so that's what I try to do with these books is is make it readable so I would let my mom have it and I, if she can understand it I knew I was in the ballpark thank you all for watching Adam thank you for joining us and we'll see you back here on the Carolina Weather Group real soon